0: scripture reading is James 4 1 through 12. If you don't have a Bible you can follow along in your bulletin or on the screen behind me. Hear the word of the Lord. What is the source of wars and fights among you? Don't they come from your passions that wage war within you? You desire and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and wage war. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your own pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? So whoever wants to be the friend of the world becomes the enemy of God. Or do you think it's without reason that the scripture says the spirit he made to dwell in us envies intensely? But he gives greater grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Don't criticize one another, brothers and sisters. Anyone who defames or judges a fellow believer defames and judges the law. If you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver and judge he was able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, peace be with you.
1: Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for this gift that you have given us that we can, that we can read with confidence, knowing that it derived from holy man inspired by the Holy Spirit. I pray, Father God, that you would speak now for your servants are listening. I pray, Father God, that you would quiet our hearts and allow us to Uh, humbly and meekly receive the implanted word, putting away anything that would harm us or stop us from getting a word from you. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, O Lord, our strength and my Redeemer. In the matchless, wonderful name of Jesus Christ, we do pray. Amen. In the movie, Father of the Bride, Steve Martin... Uh, plays the character of a guy named George Banks. George's daughter, Annie, has sprung on him uh, the fact that she is about to be married. And she's marrying someone she met in Rome, and she's excited, and he is terrified. There's a funny scene in the movie where he, uh, Mr. Banks, is trying to talk to his daughter's fiance, and he's explaining her personality uh, to him, and this is what he has to say. He says, "Annie is very is a very passionate person, and passionate people tend to overreact at times. And he comes from a long line of major overreactors. Me, I can definitely lose it. My mother, a nut. My grandfather, stories about him are legendary. The good news, however, is that this overreacting tends to get proportionately less by generation. So your kids." could be normal. <laughs> and, uh, and we know in movies, especially in movies like this, where uh, Steve Martin is playing a character uh, that is making fun of just our human tendencies to overreact, our human tendencies to just find ourselves in conflict on a big screen. It's funny. It entertains us. It, it's, it's comedy. But in real life, when we overreact to stuff, when we find ourselves in a situation where someone else is overreacting towards us, and it causes pain. It can ruin marriages. It can tear apart families. It can separate close friends. And it can divide churches. And in James, we read and we see that the author is writing to Jewish Christians who are dispersed, who are trying to live as a faithful community in the midst of people who don't believe, who are being persecuted for their faith. And the church should serve as a place that um, is of solace, a place of encouragement, a place of of peace, a place where Christ reigns supreme. Um, But we see in James' day, just as we see many times in our days, churches instead um, can become very inward focused uh, they can begin to, to, to become, uh, inflict harm and, and wounds against each other. And so James has been a, addressing this throughout his book. And we see in James chapter one, he addresses this by showing his church that a sign of a true relationship with God um, is, is that we have learned to bridle our tongue. And then in James chapter three, he's just talking about the tongue again, because he's concerned that, that the church is using their tongue. People are using their tongue to hurt each other. And all the way from chapter 3 into chapter 4, he's really addressing the tongue and teaching us that that from our mouth uh, flows the issues of our heart, and that if we're going to be faithful Christians, if we're going to have a faith to work, it is because we're learning to put to death the deeds of the flesh, and part of the deeds of the flesh is us using our tongue in unhealthy ways. And so he, in essence, is getting at why we fight, why we overreact. And we're going to learn in this text, and we're going to be challenged by James in this way. James wants us to see that true friendship with Jesus, as we're walking and cultivating intimacy with Jesus, it extinguishes unhealthy cravings and allows us to live with each other in community without strife. True friendship with Jesus, healthy friendship with Jesus, minimizes unhealthy relationships with each other. And so he's going to show us this by first addressing why we fight, why we war against each other. And he starts in verse one, he says, what is the source of wars and fights among you? He's like, yo, why are y'all beefing with one another as the people of God? And let me pause right there. Let me ask you, what's the source of your most recent conflict? What's the source of your most recent fight? When was the last time you found yourself in a situation with someone where things went array and went wrong? Why were you fighting? Was it because maybe it was a coworker who was just tapping on your last nerve and you just got fed up? Was it a, a roommate who doesn't value maybe cleanliness in the way that you do? Right, because after all, cleanliness is next to godliness. I'm just joking, that's not in the Bible, man. <laughs> Some of you are like, yes, where's that verse? <laughs> or maybe it was you and a roommate who was pushing on you because of, uh, of your lack of cleanliness. Like, what was it over? Was it because someone overlooked you or minimized your contribution to something? He's saying, why are you fighting? Now, remember, this is in a community aspect. This is in a church aspect. So specifically, talking to the church and to Christians like, like, why are y'all beefing? Is it because uh, your favorite songs aren't getting played and other songs are? Um, is it because your name got called out as an example in a positive way by your local house elder and uh, someone else's didn't or vice versa? Like, why is it this, sir? Why are you all fighting? And at the root of he showed us in chapter three, it's selfish ambition. Right. But he's going to go deeper into these fights by getting to the heart of the matter, by getting to what's really happening underneath the surface. And so he tells us here that the cause of our fights are our unmet passions. He says, don't they come from your passions that wage war within you? Now, we expect him to say, uh, doesn't it come from other people who are just acting foolishly and not giving you what you want? But that's not what he says. He says, generally, when we find ourselves at war with someone else, whether that plays out externally in us yelling and screaming at each other, or whether that's that's internally when we're at war with someone else and we're becoming bitter or or cold towards someone. He's saying what really is happening is that your passions, your unmet cravings are at war within you. Now, here's the thing we want to understand. Unmet passions that could be good desires. Like, it's it's not necessarily a bad desire to want a friend to acknowledge um, the sacrifices that you make as a friend for them. It's not necessarily a, a sinful uh, a, a passion for a husband to want um, the respect of his wife or a wife to feel loved by his husband. It's not necessarily a, un, uh, a necessary sin for uh, you if you're serving in a way in this church for the ministry in which you're serving to show appreciation. But what happens is, is that oftentimes those unmet desires, James 1, We have a desire that we want that is not being met. And that unmet desire, that good desire, becomes the ultimate thing. That unmet craving becomes the ultimate craving. There's a quote that I like. It's kind of a common quote that I've read multiple times. It says this. You can be right about what's wrong and wrong in your way of being right. (laughs) Like you can have a desire for something that is good and that's right and be right about it. But if that which is right leads you to behave and respond wrongly, you're wrong. And what often is happening in our hearts in those times of conflict is that these passions, they get a hold of us and they, they take control in our heart. Our heart is the control center of our soul. They become so important to us. And in those moments, we begin to worship the thing that we're not getting instead of worshiping Christ. Paul put it this way in Philippians chapter one, verse 21. He says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, if we were to take Christ out of Philippians one and to substitute it with that thing, you know, that last conflict or that thing that we constantly are getting upset with. And if we find ourselves responding in sinful ways, it's because in that situation or in that thing, something other than Jesus is what you have told yourself you absolutely must have or you can't live the good life. So instead of it saying for me to live is Christ, maybe it's for me to live is getting this promotion. For me to live is for my community group to see how smart I am. For me to live is for my preference and the way we do things as a church. For me to live is for that to be lived out and experienced by everything. For me to live is to, to get my children to obey and to respond a certain way. And all of us are guilty of that at some point and at some time. And James wants to help us. And the good thing about what James is doing is he's not giving us Freudian uh, uh, theology or psychology. Um, he's not like leaving us hopeless, like, oh, you're just an animal. You're, a, uh, 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 you're just like a, any other mammal and you can't control yourself. You can't help yourself. No, he's helping the church to see, uh, no, there is a problem. The problem is we, we are sinful. <laughs> Um, but there also is a solution. So let's look at let, that more uh, in depth. So we see the cause. Now let's look, at, let's look at the consequence. When we have an unmet, unhealthy desire or passion, there are consequences to what happens. Verse 2 You desire, you do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. So what happens when we have an unhealthy craving? It often leads to murder and coveting. You may say, Murder. And perhaps this is James using hyperbole. I'm not sure. I I doubt if he could point to many examples within the Jewish Christian community. Like, look, everyone is killing each other in their house churches. But more likely what's happening is he's using murder in a term that Jesus talked about in Matthew chapter 5. It says this. You have heard that it was said to our ancestors, do not murder, and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Whoever says you fool will be subject to hellfire. And so what is Jesus teaching in Matthew chapter 5, that murder is not simply physically taking someone's life. Murder is also, as Christians, when we have a heart of anger towards someone and we are trying to use our words or our actions to completely and deliberately destroy them. It is is what John talks about in 1 John when he says, how can you say that you love God whom you don't see and you are hating your brother who you do see? And we know because of uh, uh, progressive sanctification and what we see throughout the New Testament that this isn't just talking about perhaps just one time or one incident or one blow up. This is when you look back over the span of your life and even life as a Christian. And if if what's marked on you is habitual, intentional, flagrant uh, 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 denial of someone's humanity by mistreating them in ungracious ways that you you may be setting yourself up and you may be living in delusion. I mean, that's exactly what James is getting at in his text. Look at verses 10 through 12. He says this, 11 through 12, excuse me. Don't criticize one another, brothers and sisters. Anyone who defames or who judges a fellow believer defames and judges the law. Now, what's the law here? Well, we read in, in James chapter uh, 2, uh, verse 8, this. Indeed, if you fulfill the royal law prescribed in the scripture, love your neighbors yourself. So what is James talking about when he's talking about the law? He's not talking about the Jewish particularism and its covenantal law and in, 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 uh, in the Mosaic law. He's talking about this, this principle, this gospel principle that Jesus uh, teaches, which is to love your neighbor as yourself, which is to love your neighbor as yourself. He says, if you judge the law, you are a doer of the law, but not a doer, but a, a judge. There is one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy you. But who are you to judge your neighbor? So this is what James is. This is the thrust of what he's getting at, because people are judging, judging, harshly criticizing other people, other believers to the point of murdering them with their words or murdering their reputation. All right. Now, in Matthew chapter five, Jesus goes on and and he kind of obliterates the argument that we see. Right. Tupac, only God can judge me. Uh, And what Pac meant by that is God is the only person who can call me out for something. That's not what Jesus is saying. You see, in in Matthew chapter five, Jesus is like, no, if your brother has a log in his eye, make sure you get this, the, the splinter out of your eye right? So Christians, we can correct each other. We do this in love, Ephesians chapter 4, 3, Ephesians chapter 4, 15, Galatians chapter 1, 6, uh, 1 through 6. We need brothers and sisters in our life to gently correct us. But what he's talking about is this overstepping of harsh, possibly hab- habitual criticism that is not done in love, but is done to, to hurt people. It's not done to restore people. It's done to tear them down. Listen, James is like, yo, y'all, you guys are, we are the beloved community of God. We are those who have been regenerated, those who have been made new, those who have been given a living hope. This is not the way we should treat each other. He says, you murder and you covet and you cannot obtain you fight and you wage war. And sometimes it actually leads to war. I think about what happened in Rwanda in the mid 90s, the genocide that happened, as primary two, two tribes were going against each other, 100,000 people were left dead. Um, and what's sad about what happened in Rwanda is 85% of those people uh, professed to be Christians. And we don't just have to use Rwanda's example, we can use our own country as well as most major countries and uh, throughout the world where there are Christians who at some time allowed an unmet desire to become an unhealthy craving. And that unhealthy craving became the thing that they absolutely had to have. And as a result, they ended up justifying their position and killing someone else who was in the image of God. So that's the consequences, murder. But notice what's under that. What's under that, James is about to teach us and show us what's under that is, is, is a lack of intimacy with God. He says, what's going on in all of those, our hearts, when we find ourselves in that place, when I find myself um, uh, 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 sinning at home towards my kids or, or towards my wife, maybe cold shouldering because something didn't go my way. He says, what's happening in your heart, Jamal? What's happening in your heart is that there is a, there's vertical hostility, not just horizontal hostility, there is vertical hostility going on. And that shows up in the fact that normally in those times where we are just raging angry, when we are overreacting sinfully, what's happening in our heart um, or in our lives normally is is a result of prayerlessness. Look at the passage, prayerlessness. It says this, You murder, you covet, and cannot obtain. You fight and wage war you do not have because you do not ask. He's saying you're not praying. (laughs) The thing that you need most, going off James 3, 13 through 16, is peace. It's not your way. (laughs) The thing that you need most is God's wisdom, James 1 and 5. It's not you getting what you want. And the reason you're not getting what you want, he says, is because you're not praying. Because if you were praying, um, and if you're praying God's will, um, the Lord would give you peace. (laughs) Right? And so it's almost as if he's responding to their objections. That's verse 3. Someone is like, they're probably reading this this letter, and he's thinking, oh, they're going to say, well, I am praying. I got a great prayer life. And he's like, oh, yeah? Well, look, you ask and don't receive... Because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. He's saying when you do pray, it's all self-focus. It's all about you. It's the root of the prosperity gospel, isn't it? It's all about me. God becomes a genie. He becomes what I, who I go to to meet my pleasures, to meet what I want, right? And that's not what prayer is. Prayer is not God bending, Um. His will to ours is us going to God as the sovereign ruler of the universe who knows what's best and right and us saying, as Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. Your kingdom come, my kingdom go. We read this in the book Uh, Honest Evangelism. This quote is given. We turn God into a divine waiter. He is there to deliver our daydream to us We touch base with him on a Sunday. We put our order in via prayer. We might give a decent tip in the collection plate, but God is essentially there to provide us with what we feel we need. And we get furious with him if he doesn't deliver. And so probably all of us have a person or a situation that we're tempted to be embittered with, or because of our personalities or the things that we want from this person that we're not getting, we're tempted to hold on to. And God, I think, is calling us as his church and as his people to remind ourselves that it's not about us. Psalm 115, not unto us, not unto us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love. He's saying, church, enough with the spiritual selfies. Remember that you don't exist and I don't exist for you. You exist for me. Turn the camera around, you know, hit the reverse button, push it up and remember that I have saved you. I've called you out of darkness into the marvelous light, not so that you can just get you and be about you, but so that you can set your affection on me who have saved you not only for hell, but who has promised you abundant life as you seek me. And even those desires, though they may be right or good, we can go about them the wrong way. And my desire is to give you the desires of your heart and for you to desire the right thing with the right motives and the right way so that you can experience true life and true joy in me. And I don't know about you, but I desperately need the Lord to help me to believe this and to do this. And the way that that is found is not me going deeper into what I want, but it's me going deeper into the Father. It's me going deeper into Jesus is Colossians 3, 1 and 2. It's me setting my eyes on the things that are above and not the things that are on this earth. It's by me clinging to this gospel of hope and running to, to the one who has justified me and made me right with God. And realizing that if I don't, if I don't, the consequences, my overreaction can tear my kids down. It can tear my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ down. It it can tear uh, uh, God's image, God's reputation down on social media as a watching world, looking at us as Christians, bicker foolishly, maybe about the right things, but the wrong way. It can have grave consequences. And God is inviting us to what? Well, he's going to show us that in the charge that he's going to give the church. Look at verse four. You adulterous people. In other words, you cheaters. What is he doing here? He is bringing in James's a nickname for James by the early church, by the way, was James the just, as they called him, James the just. He was, a, he was a man about, about justice and, and righteousness. His, his letter uh, kind of uh, has the aroma of uh, the Proverbs, an aroma of the prophets, You adulterers. Someone else used this phraseology, Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 20. The prophet Jeremiah used the same language to talk and to speak of Israel. I think we have this quote. He says these words. All right. He doesn't. But he calls Israel, he calls them adulterers. He, he calls them, uh, uh, he, he, he says like, like a wife who is stray from a husband, so are you straying from the Lord. And then we see Jesus doing the same thing in Matthew chapter 12. He speaks to Israel and specifically the religious leaders of the day who was telling him, constantly telling him, do a miracle, make us believe, do a miracle. And what does Jesus call them? He calls them adulterers. He says, you cheaters. Your your heart isn't with you. So here James uses the same language and he goes on to say, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? So this is interesting. He's saying when we are angry towards our brothers and sisters in Christ and when we sinfully follow Passions gone array. When our horizontal relationships is filled with strife, it points to the fact that there's actually a vertical strife. All horizontal wars and fights point us to a deeper problem, and a deeper problem is that our hearts are not captivated and captured by God. That we do not trust that He is enough. That we do not trust that He can satisfy us more than the thing that we desperately long for from someone or some institution. When we sinfully lash out at someone else, What what James is teaching us is because we have neglected our friendship with God. I love this language. Don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Listen, I think in in, in Christendom, in our circle of of Christendom, sometimes we focus rightly so on the lordship of Jesus. But we don't spend time to, to really hear his words and what he says to the disciples. No longer do I call you servants but I, I call you friends. We're not just God's servants, we're his friends. And he's not talking about like what we like to talk about today's society. When we think of a friend, we think of Facebook. We think of these shallow relationships and associations, right, that's pretty odd, like you're friends with 3,000 people, but only like 10 of them do you actually know their first and last name and what they, where they work, right? That's not the friendship he's talking about. He's talking about an intimate relationship And so what James is trying to show us is that our relationship, that God wants, that we're in relationship with him, that we are his friends, y'all. Despite our sin, despite our struggles, despite our our wayward hearts, despite our desires, it turns to unhealthy cravings that that God is saying, you belong to me, I'm your friend, you're my friend. As Moses, uh, Exodus says, looked uh, and met with God face to face. And God, consider him a friend. God is inviting you into that deep relationship, that intimate relationship where you all have a friendship together, a depth together. But sometimes our our passions don't allow us to experience the peace of God because we choose self-focus over glorifying God. And as a result, we don't have peace. So well, that's the charge that he gives us. Look at verse five. Amazing verse. Or do you think it's without reason that the scripture says the spirit he made to dwell in us envies intensely? This is one of my favorite passages in all of James. Uh, it's absolutely amazing. Uh, verse, uh, this verse in the ESV uh, talks about how God, how the spirit yearns jealously. Um, Um, over us, for us, that God is jealous for us, which means when I'm in conflict, when I am at war, when I am fighting against someone else in my heart, when I am overreacting, that the Holy Spirit, God himself, is jealously looking on. And he's saying, I am jealous, not of you, I'm jealous for you. I want to be intimate with you. I yearn to show myself strong in your life. I yearn to give you a peace that passeth all understanding. I yearn to allow you to rejoice and to flourish in the midst of hardship. I yearn to draw you close and to show you that that you are to me what I said you are to me. You are my beloved. You are who I sing over. You are the one in whom I delight in Christ Jesus. You find your identity, you find your hope, you find your your father, you find your, your joy, you find your footing. He's saying, I'm jealous because this object, because this desire, because this thing has now taken my place and I saved you from that so that you can know who I am, so that you can experience me, so that you can have joy, so that you can give that joy away to other people. And he says, I'm jealous for you. God is jealous for you. Messy old me, messy old you, he like, like he's yearning to be intimate with you. He's yearning to walk with you. He's yearning. He's yearning to draw near to you, even in your rebellion, even in our mess, even in our gossip, even in our hypercriticism. He's like, I'm here. Now, Oprah Winfrey. <laughs> you are like, uh-oh, <laughs> got to stay away from Oprah. testifies that one of the reasons she could not be a Christian and stopped going to church is that she was at church in New York, and a pastor preached from Exodus about the jealousy of God. And she said, that doesn't make sense. God being jealous of what I have. In essence, she said, if that is true, he's not a God that I want to worship. What Oprah missed, and what some of us miss, is God is not jealous of (laughs) you. I mean, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. God ain't jealous of you. Everything you have is a gift from him. Every dollar you have belongs to him. God is jealous for you. He created you for more. So that's, that's the charge. The charge is spiritual adultery. The charge is us choosing to be friends with the world that overpromises and underdelivers. But look at the cure really quickly, verse six. But he gives greater grace. <laughs> like we read this prophetic word, this what seems to be a, a hard, convicting word. You adulterers, you cheaters. And James is like, I'm, I'm saying these things to you, but I want you to understand this isn't to condemn you. There's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. This is to, to wake you up. This is to wake you up. And then what does he say is the cure? The cure to my unmet, unhealthy passions that have gone away is not in me being moralistic. It's not in me being strong enough. It's not in me making a list of things and on Monday saying these are the things I vow to do. It's actually the opposite. It's actually grace and humility. And this isn't a cheap grace. This isn't a grace that says, okay, uh, keep committing adultery. Everything's going to be right. Christ died for you. It's the opposite. It's a grace that leads you to repentance. It's a grace, Romans chapter 2, that shows us God's kindness, and it's a grace that empowers us through the Spirit to be faithful. And so what does he do here? He gives us 11 imperatives to show what grace leads us to do, and what grace leads us to do is to repent. And I love that he gives greater grace. Why is that important? He doesn't just give grace. He gives greater grace. Why is that important? Because we're great sinners. But we're great sinners that have a great savior that was able to do great things in spite of us and to lead us to greater joy. And though we may never be sinless, he empowers us by grace to sin less. He gives greater grace. Look at these imperators. Let's just read it slowly. Therefore, submit to God. Now, he's going to give us what I call a humble sandwich. Look at verse seven. Therefore, submit to God. Look at verse 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord. What does submission to God look like? It's total surrender. It's total surrender. Eugene Peterson, he kind of summarizes this section by saying these words. He says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. In other words, he's saying, Yell no to the devil and the devil will leave. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Say yes to God. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Now, here's what I mean with the gospel. Okay, moralism says I am accepted by God right, because of the way I behave. The gospel says you are accepted by God because of what Christ did for you. And when you believe what Christ did for you, you can be empowered to have changed behavior. Right? So, yes, it's obeying God. He says, cleanse your hands, you sinners. That's external. But notice the next section. He tells us to purify our hearts. And how do we do that? He says, you double-minded. Now this is a theme in James, James chapter 1. He says that the person who does not pray in faith, who's not... uh, relationally walking with the Lord, he says, is a person who is double-minded in all their ways. He says they're like a, uh, uh, like they, they're tossed to and fro by the wind, okay? And this is us when we're not uh, trusting the Lord, when we believe we have to have that thing from that person to the, to the point that we sin against other people to get it. He says we're being double-minded. He's saying, put away your double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let laughter be turned into mourning and joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord and he'll exalt you. He'll give you peace. He'll set you on the right path. But notice what he says. He says, humble yourself before the Lord. Some of you right now, the spirit is probably convicting you of someone that you have in your heart in prison. Someone who is constantly getting on your door. Someone who has failed you and they probably failed you big time, and it hurts. It may even be traumatic. I think what the Spirit is doing to the church is saying, humble yourself before God. Go to Him. Lay that before Him. Stop believing that you're strong enough, that you're you're God, you can judge them, and you're, you're the one that can fix it and say, Lord, I can't fix it. I can't even fix my own heart. Help me to forgive this person. Help me to release them. Help me to set them free. Help me to stop murdering them in outward and or even maybe subversive ways like gossip. Help me to trust you. And the way you trust, you do that is by, by remembering the friendship that you have with God, the relationship that He's given you, how He has set you free, how you deserved His wrath, how you deserved His punishment, how you deserve eternal damnation. But God, who is rich in mercy, gave you life. It's the only way you're going to be able to love your enemy. It's the only way you're going to go an extra mile for the person who actually you to go one mile who's retrieved, who's, who's tapping your own nerves. That's the only way you're going to be able to live in community here with gratitude rather than grumbling because preferences aren't being met. is by humbling yourself before God. Isn't it amazing that Jesus humbled himself before God the Father, though he, he never sinned? <laughs> Isn't it amazing that he took the death that we deserved and that he emptied himself so that we can be full of life? Isn't it amazing that he lived 33 years on this side of heaven, never sinned in thought or in deed? Isn't it amazing that Judas, his one of his close friends, betrayed him for a little money, and that even in those moments, he didn't step over the line and murder him with his words. Isn't it amazing that he stood before Pilate, the one that he created, the one that he made, the one that he owned, and allowed him to to minimize him and to talk to him as if he was less than, though he was the author of the very breath that he was breathing? Isn't it amazing that he could have called down a legion of angels and put an end to all of the persecution that he was facing unjustly, and he didn't. Instead of of cursing, he blessed. But isn't it amazing that that blow up you had this week, that that gossiping, that that bickerness, that that cage that you have that parent in for the way that they treated you, In your heart, isn't it amazing that he looks at you and rather than condemn you, he says, I love you. I'm with you. (laughs) I'm for you. I'm committed to you. My grace is greater than your sin. You're not only my servant, but you're my friend. Nothing you can do can separate me from your love. Find freedom by obeying me. (laughs) and looking to me for life. Isn't that amazing? And that starts with us humbling ourselves as a church. It starts with us hitting that selfie button on our spiritual phones and pointing it to the Lord and saying, it's not about me, it's about you who created and holds heaven and earth in his hand and who knows the very number of hairs that are on my head or not. And who loves me? If you can stand to your feet, there's a prayer that I want us to pray corporately. I want us to silence our hearts as we pray this prayer. We're getting ready to take communion. It's time and service where we reflect on on what Christ did for us. Where we remember His sacrifice as a church family. To remember these truths and to, to touch this bread to drink this wine or juice to remind us that God is good and that he's for us. But I want us to pray this prayer, which is just us praying and, and reminding ourselves uh, and, and essentially saying, Lord, create me a clean heart. You can read the underlying portions. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace together. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. It. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is despair, hope And every Sunday, we remind ourselves of this by looking to Jesus's pattern, his sinless life, by looking to his pardon, what he did for us on the cross as our mediator and by trusting in his power to continue to renew us and to empower us to live the lives that he has called us to live. The night when Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, he broke it. said, this is my body broken for you. In the same way, he took a cup, he says, this cup is the new covenant of my blood shed for you. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, Christian, you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. Here at Sojourn, we take a piece of bread, we dip it in wine or juice. The wine is marked by twine. Whatever your conscience permits, we take a smaller piece than the piece I just took. And we do this um, uh, in remembrance of Jesus. If you're not a a Christian, we're gonna ask you not to partake in this meal, but my plea to you is to give your life to Jesus. You cannot change your own heart. You may be able to alter your behavior, but you cannot change your heart. And what God is after is not first and foremost your behavior, it is by far your heart. You give him your heart, he he will stir you up to love more. He's after your heart. Those who are here in the front, come to the front. Those who are here to my left. We have gluten free communion. Those in the back, um, you can take communion in the back. Let's pray.